Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. Going to the cinema is not the only pastime we've lost so far this summer. Sporting fixtures across the world were put on hold in March, with international football and rugby tournaments on hiatus, iconic events like Wimbledon cancelled, and even the Olympic Games have now been postponed until next summer. Sport has always proven a fertile ground for filmmakers, with footage of a match between boxers James Corbett and Bob Fitzsimons among the first ever filmed and exhibited back in 1897, while boxing also provided inspiration for Charlie Chaplin's 1915 film The Champion. Chariots of Fire, Field of Dreams, Rocky and Raging Bull have produced some of cinema's most iconic imagery and quotable lines, and recent Oscar winners including Icarus, I, Tanya, and Ford vs Ferrari show that audiences' appetites are as strong as ever. With 100 international caps, Jamie Heaslip is one of Ireland's most celebrated rugby players, and that's before we even mentioned the 229 appearances he made for Leinster. He's also a big film fan, and he joins me now on the iFi podcast to pick out some of his favourite sport films. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Jamie, tell us a little bit about your lockdown viewing. Have you been watching a lot of new films or TV series? Um, it's funny, I'd say I've been catching up a lot more on streaming services uh, and TV series, uh, series more than, than, than films. The ones that stand out have been The Last Dance, the Jeffrey Epstein documentary, Ozark, latest series of that, and All or Nothing over on Amazon Prime, and then Contagion. And that was a bit of a throwback, I was like, <laughs> I sure might as well. Um, and then... Um, that's about it. I was, uh, it's funny. I was looking through, like I had started space jam. I think that was obviously hot <laughs> off the press from, from watching the last dance and trying to see if my two year old daughter would buy into it. But yeah. uh, it didn't really capture her imagination. She's more interested in Paw Patrol or Thomas the Tank Engine. We're going to talk about some great sports films, Jamie, for you. What are the key ingredients that make up a great sports film? Like it's, it's got to have a sense of realism to it. Okay. So it's, it's got to be, because it's very hard for me to kind of relate it to rugby ones because I don't think there's really been a, any good rugby ones. I mean, Matt Damon tried with Invictus and he gave it a good go, all, all things considered. But I'd say it was the first time he ever touched a rugby ball. You know what I mean? The best ones are the ones that kind of show it a little bit warts and all and have a little bit of honesty behind it and don't try and be on point every time you know what i mean and and be positive every time and not show the bad sides or you know the the pain points along the way because that's the ones that we'll talk about i think show give a really good 360 point of view yeah and i think that's 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 hard for um that's hard really to to get you know that's a perfect seek into your first choice jamie david o russell's the fighter starring mark Wahlberg and christian bale uh, it won two Oscars when it was released back in 2010. Tell us why you picked it. I don't know. I love a comeback story, like you know, and I, and I love I love a David and Goliath story, and and in the fighter, it kind of that's you know kind of one of the overarching themes, as well as all the kind of sub themes that you're talking about. You know what I mean? Dealing with the environment that you're in and how you uh, overcome the 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 hurdles that are in the way. And having that focus and determination, what can be achieved regardless of all that, you know, you can see that's a pretty common theme in a lot of different 
you know, sport is so good at mimicking life in a, in a, in a weird way. You no, know, you overcome challenges. Sometimes you're the favorite. Sometimes you're not the favorite. Sometimes you're coming back, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes you're decimated with injury, you know, um, and you can take those narratives and overlay them in terms of, of what's going on in people's lives. And I think that's why people love sport, like a, a good sporting movie or, or documentary. And to be honest, because it's not really actual sport that is it about is it's just running parallel to the actual storyline and what the real story is. It's not, did, does he win the fight or not? You know what I mean? It's like, is he overcoming the struggles, the family problems they have, the drug addiction, you know? And I think that's what real sport movies do. And that's what I think, because that's what sport does to people. It, 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 it almost kind of plays out storylines in front of them, albeit in, in this kind of gladiatorial kind of format. What's really interesting about boxing movies as well is that for a sport that is, is quite brutal, that it has given us some of cinema's most poetic moments. And I'm thinking particularly around, you know, Raging Bull, all that kind of slow motion, black and white footage, and then Rocky, him running up the steps in Philadelphia. It's just, it's something about the sport that's really cinematic, that really works well. Yeah, well, I, I think the sometimes individual sports are able to kind of show it because it's all on the one person, isn't it? Mm-hmm. As opposed to the team as much, which uh, is a little bit of a different dynamic. But I think boxing is just, it, it, it's like two gladiators just like in the ring, no one else, just the two of them going at it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Very, some very, very raw and pure about it. I, I love Mike Tyson's phrase, you know, when, when people step into a boxing ring, you know, everyone has, plan, has a plan until they get punched in the face, you know, and then you <laughs> see what happens to the person um, and you see how they deal with it. So I think, you know, that's why boxing, you know, it, it spits out some, some great movies and, and kind of fighting ones as well. I know another one that, we meant, that I mentioned, I don't know if we'll talk about it, is Warrior in terms of, you know, it, you know it's based around the UFC fighting, but it still goes through a lot of the issues that we talked about in The Fighter. And it's actually one of the movies that I, I always feel it never went great at all in the actual in cinemas, but like was this like under the radar absolute hit when people actually saw it because it's a belter of a movie. Jamie, a theme that often occurs in boxing films is the idea that you need to be defeated first before you become, can become a champion. And I'm curious about how, as a sportsman, you negotiate that thin line between getting defeated and then picking yourself up again. Was that always the challenge? Um, I, I think it's a challenge that everyone has to fa- be faced with at some stage in their life. And in, in, in sport, it's very real. It's like a game. You either win a game or you lose a game or you win a fight and you lose a fight, you know. And, and, and sometimes in life, it's a little bit more difficult to see what the, the moment was that you won or lost and, and how do you get that moment back or how do you have another moment like it. I think it's more about dealing with adversity, adversity you know, overcoming challenges, overcoming loss, how you, how you move forward, you know, as a team. And, and in past life, you know, that's what you had to do you had to you had to face up to the challenge and sometimes you won sometimes you lost but you very quickly realized that you couldn't control the outcome as such you could control the process and mm-hmm. and the lead into it but you can't con- always control the outcome because sometimes you can have an amazing game but you know bounce the ball and team wins or, or or in boxing a guy just gets one good shot and you're out cold you know what i mean like so there's there's things at force that you just can't deal with and, and you learn to control that and see what you can influence and accept things that you can't and then learn from it be and learn from the winning as well as the losing the fighter is available to stream on netflix jamie we're going to look at an equally tough sport now and that's wrestling with darren aronofsky's the wrestler which is known primarily for an incredible comeback performance from mickey Rourke, who's just magnificent in this film 
this is one of those movies where it wasn't exactly a, a, a nice story, but uh, it was a very honest story. And I don't know if you've seen any of the different documentaries. I think there was one on Jake the Snake and stuff like that that showed a real raw side to that to that world and the grind of of wrestling and pro wrestling. And um, you know, this deals with a whole lot of other challenges and, and narratives that are facing life. But I, I just thought it was a, it was a really really well put together, honest pure movie that that was kind of showed warts and all of of that world and it's a far cry from the wwf or the wwe where this is real this is like men taking real hits in a ring yeah and it kind of showed a lot about like what it means to pursue your passion and what like what sacrifices you make and they're not always good you know what i mean i think it's not always the right thing you know you 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 know how do you how does the ending go for you can you control the ending sometimes you can't you know there's there's a lot of things in that to to kind of take away and unpack but um one thing like i thought it was a great movie as well because even they just set the way they set the scene with just even the music around it was was just put you in this 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 really good empathetic kind of state of mind i suppose throughout the whole movie and you kind of really like at the end of it like you just, you're just absolutely feel, feeling for him you mentioned raging bull you know these great movies that don't just see what's on the screen in terms of the actors and what they're saying but also like imagery that's been used the background music you know how it just all sets a scene and comes together and and that movie in particular is one where the blend is just right yeah and this i mean there's a really heartbreaking scene in the wrestler if i'm remembering correctly towards the end where you know it's it, it's gone beyond just you know a wrestling match where it's it's turned into a show and you know there's this guy and he's got staples and he's putting staples into his back and it's just kind of a, a, a kind of a degrading spectacle for somebody who was kind of at the height of their game yeah and 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 it's like we talked at that point of of of, you know in anything when when do you know to get off you know what i mean or can you get off and and at what point does it become a good habit versus a bad habit you know and and constructive versus destructive you know and recognizing that and having the self-awareness to recognize that Mm -hmm. and in this you know we we too often tell the good story obviously very much in this movie you know it kind of is is unapologetic and in in how it frames it yeah and the, the film deals with a lot of issues around sports something particularly around steroids and you know drinking alcohol drug abuse but i suppose one of the biggest issues it tackles is actually that idea of like you say when do you stop and then once you stop what do you do next and i just you know obviously yeah. there's always a lot of talk around soccer players that they go to to england and they're very young and then they don't make it but i just wonder from your point of view or is your perception that in sport is that getting better that our structure is getting better in relation to help people assist them once their sporting career is over i can only really speak to rugby i do know talking to guys in in like ga and and, and hurling that you know in one way you're kind of jealous of them because while they're not professional but they they do everything that professionals do they're also a parallel running their own career you know, whatever that is, full-time job, and then they, everything else kind of fits around it. And it's a massive undertaking and sacrifice in their hand. And I'm sure they would be very much, talking to a few of them, they, they'd love to go just professional. And in terms of what would that do to the sport, you know? You know, this is, this is a hypothetical scenario. But the thing is, you know, 
now in terms of rugby, you know, guys are entering into the professional game younger and younger. And albeit they might go into the academy, the academy is like, they might still be in college, but like, it's not the same experience that you and I would have had in college. And they're kind of finishing their courses over a few years, as opposed to in the set time that normal that you normally would do in college and have that life experience as such. But because once you get into that rugby world it, it, as a professional, it's all consuming and, and, and that's what it demands. And, and that's what it should demand. But it's, it's a weird paradox because it, it doesn't allow you to easily step outside that bubble and try and prepare yourself for life after rugby. Because whatever degree you do when you're like 20, 21, if you're lucky and you get a 10 year, 15 year career, it's highly unlikely that you're A, you're gonna to wanna to do that carrying, out, carrying that through. And, uh, and B, if you do, your peers have had 15 years experience on you. So where do you go, where do you start? Yeah. You know, and it's like how you set yourself up and plan for that. And, and I, I, I'm, I don't know, and it's getting better, but I don't know if, it, if it's at the place we want it to be, where mm-hmm. you know, players are in a good position to kind of transition career in, in, if they're lucky in their mid-30s. It's something that's going to become more and more common. I think they say now on average, people change careers seven times over their, over their working life. And um, I, I just think, you know, rugby guys, it demands so much of you that you can't really give a lot of time to anything else. But then you, all of a sudden, this it changes overnight and, and you're kind of out on your own and, and the rugby business still continues, but you you got to kind of figure it out of, of how you're going to kind of get on for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you know? Yeah. And I suppose in, in, in the case of, and I'm not just talking about rugby here, obviously I'm talking about any kind of club sports where obviously for a player, their commitment is to the club. But do you think that the onus is on the clubs as well to have that commitment to the player for that parallel development, if you like? Yeah, personally, I think there's, there's, there should be a little bit of responsibility on the organizations to, to look at the player in a, in a 360 perspective as, a, as opposed to like a one-dimensional way. And a lot of studies have shown that when you do that, you actually get a better athlete. So, you know, you, you, could, you could argue that it could benefit them anyway if they, they look at the person 360. You're already seeing a lot of big business, big corporate corporations doing this in terms of their employees in terms of using coaches, you know, to help them map out career plans or or performance plans or, or, you know, all these sort of different things to make sure that, you know, you're looking at the person in a 360 perspective as opposed to one dimensional, because, you know, I just don't think you can look at someone who's working in an organization in in one way, because there's a whole lot going on that you Mm -hmm. need all that kind of purring away really, really nicely to get the most, to get the best out of the person. And that's what we all want. We want to be the best versions of ourselves. Uh, just to say that the wrestler is available to rent uh, from google play itunes and sky store uh, two films next jamie that i want to look at um, examine the effect on the pitch of what happens off the pitch and the first one is the absolutely brilliant Moneyball, uh, directed by bennett yeah. miller um, which looks at the profound effect that data and maths had on a struggling baseball team tell us a little bit about this one it's funny because I, I'm big into this because my degree is actually medical mechanical engineering. So while I was studying that, what they did is they break the body down into a mechanical frame, essentially, and you're able to look at it in that kind of mathematical physics type of, of way. And Moneyball came out, actually, I think it was after I had invested in a company called Kitman Labs, which was very much taking the data from all the different points, hardware points that were tracking 
uh, individuals on, on the field and off the field and using it to help predict injury. So it was using that kind of format. And actually, funny enough, the character is part of uh, our advisory board. who's one of the first advisors that we brought into Kitman Labs because we're one of the kind of first to lean into this way of using this data and, and seeing the power of, because it gets to a level where you know, everyone's professional and, and you're looking for those marginal gains. And there's a lot in it in terms of, of using that data because, you know, while individually it all might seem a bit random, but when you play it out on the macro level and you use machine learning and AI, there are trends that you can identify, you know, and that's what Moneyball did in terms of using the maths to, you know, it couldn't, it couldn't compete with, you know, the big budgets to get of the other, of the other clubs. But however, it leaned on maths to kind of say, okay, is there another way to do it? And there was, and, and it kind of changed the game. And then you saw everyone else, uh, follow suit so uh, I think you're going to actually see in terms of innovation in sport this is a great movie that highlighted what can happen and I think it highlighted what is going to happen in the coming years because that's what was so surprising to me when I watched the film and I know it's set in 2001 and 2002 but to me it just seemed something that was so obvious that you would look at each team's and each player's individual performance but oftentimes so much of it just went on well this is what this player is worth and therefore their their value is based on the price tag on their head you know when it comes to that there's a lot of human emotion and there's a lot of tradition built over and the thing about tradition there would have been a lot of people whose skill set didn't necessarily relied on numbers or figures but relied on a feeling or what they thought you know what i mean and there's a place for that there's a place for your good instinct on this there's also a place for numbers there's actually i think there's a bit of an art in blending all of it together and I, because uh, sometimes there are guys that define the numbers, you know, and, and there are outliers as well. So uh, it, it's a bit of a blend, but the simple ideas are always the ones where you go, oh, sure, like I could have thought of that. Yeah. Just like you did there, Stephen. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? I would have thought that's so obvious. Well, yeah, why didn't you come up with it? Um, you know what I mean? Sometimes they're, they're, they're really genius ideas. And sometimes the first person as well through the door gets the bloody nose and everyone else kind of gets to reap the rewards on it. But it's a, it's a real interesting space because, example, I know I'm coming back to rugby, but Leinster were the first to use GPS trackers in the Northern Hemisphere in rugby. It wasn't being used. We, we actually, we were lucky because we pulled it. Michael Checker was from Sydney, from Ramwick in, in Australia. And he, um, he saw the Aussie Rules guys using it. So that's how we started using it up in Leinster. And we were the first to use it. And then we were one of the first to use it to re- reduce down our injury profile as well as get training to mimic gains. And that was only using GPS trackers. But as you know now, there's more and more data being collected all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just makes sense that if you want to start getting those big macro trends, that's how you, you, you know, using all the, the data there in machine learning is, is a way of doing it. But it's, it's obvious now, obviously, because it's getting done a lot. So data is really now the basis for analyzing sports performance as much as anything else. I, I, I think it makes a part, I think there's still a bit of art to it. Um, and I think that's what, at the very, very end, I think that's what you see Billy Bean kind of walking away with, kind of going, he, he had offers to go to the clubs where he could combine the, the big money and this kind of approach, but, but stayed put and, and decided to see if, he could, if there was an art to it as such. And, and even, sorry, in the movie, there was guys who had really good numbers, but who were quite toxic in terms of the changing room. And that's another big part that is very hard to put data points on. Mm-hmm. So there is a whole human dynamic which is very hard to calculate 
Two brilliant performances from Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. Moneyball is available to stream on Netflix. Uh, Jamie, one of the most entertaining films about the business of sport is undoubtedly Jerry Maguire. It's hard to believe that it's almost 25 years old. Everybody's familiar with the story um, about a sports agent who has a meltdown one evening and changes his philosophy around being an agent. Why did you pick out this one? Um, having been a player and you, you see how the business works and I, you just love the idea of this guy changing his tack up and kind of going, oh, I'm going to have just a handful of guys and do well by them as opposed to having loads of players and just trying to parlay them all to, to make big money. You know, because in, in rugby, to be honest, like a lot of agents have 20, 30, 40 players on their books and, you know, because the money is a massive in, in, in rugby and, and it always, that's why I never went with a guy who had that many because it always didn't sit well with me that he wasn't doing right by you. You didn't know whose contract he was trying to play off in the negotiation. Now, I'm, when I look back on it, I can say I can relate to it. Not obviously when it came out 25 years ago, I yeah. wasn't playing professional rugby and I couldn't relate to it. <laughs> I was just loving it. You know what I mean? And, and um, just loving the performance, I suppose. But it's, you know, these are great movies because I, I, you know, you you go back and you look over them and you kind of, you, you get to reframe them or, or relate to them in different ways, depending on where you are in your life. And that's a sign of a, a movie that can stand the test of time. Jerry Maguire is available to stream on SkyGo and now TV. Um, last couple of picks from you, uh, Jamie. What I will say is stay tuned to the rest of the podcast because we have an interview with director Asif Kapadia coming up, which was recorded last year when he visited the IFI for the release of Diego Maradona. But you've picked one of his earlier films, Jamie Senna, which is the brilliantly told film about the life of the racing driver Ayrton Senna. Yeah, Senna was one that I watched. F- Formula One. I don't know a whole lot about Formula One, but I know it was it was it, it, you know it was a global sport. It was quite prestigious. A bit of an air of mystery around it, but over the last few years, it's, it's kind of opened itself up. Obviously, in terms of uh, media wise, and and then I was lucky enough to go last year to the Monaco Grand Prix, but. I think it just gave a real sense of what a, a innovator and game changer can do to a sport and how it can elevate it. And we've seen that in all sorts of different other walks of life in, in terms of sport, of how individuals come around, they just, they just change the game on it. And he was one of them. And I, like you're saying that you didn't have a huge interest in, in Formula One, but what I would say about Senna is that the story is told in such a way that you don't need to be a big fan of Formula One because it is just a story of an amazing sportsman and it's a very human story as well. Yeah, and, and he's one of those guys that kind of transcended the sport. And that happens every so often, I think, where you have individuals that just change, like that are bigger than their sport to a certain degree. And I think he, I, I think that's what he was. And obviously the storyline as well, and it end, ends quite tragically, obviously, mm-hmm. was a very real story of, of the type of person that he was, where he came from, his background, and how he was trying to be an innovator in their sport and, and do right by the drivers, but also by the people who are coming out to watch the sport. And it's a very emotional film. I mean, I remember when I saw it in the cinema and it's one of the very few times that I've heard men crying in a cinema watching a film because it is that just that idea of that sporting hero who just comes to that very, very sad end. You, you, you would have loved to see so much more from him, but like cut down in his prime uh, in a tragic accident, doing what he loved, but then at the same time having warned a lot about the different dangers that they face and how to potentially mitigate them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, there's a lot of kind of things at play there that at the end, you know, you, you'll find it'll be hard to find a dry eye in the house when, when uh, it comes to the end of that movie. 
Yeah. Senna is available to rent from iTunes and Google Play. Finally, Jamie Heaslipper, you were not going to send me on a list that included Cool Runnings and not have us talk about it. Um, I know it's a huge nostalgic watch for so many people. So tell us about Cool Runnings. It's just a good feel-good movie. But again, <laughs> like it comes, you know what I mean? It's 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 hard not to like. But again, I, I, we started talking about David versus Goliath, and this is one of those movies. You know what I mean? There's a whole lot of funny stuff that goes on in it and how guys are trying to be sprinters they don't make it they change they, they kind of transition into this world of bobsledding from jamaica and problems that they have there but how they really lean into it they commit the whole way and and how they they make their country proud regardless uh, of, of how the outcome goes but again just a massive throwback it was just i remember it anytime i watch it from when i was a young fella it's just a good a feel good movie yeah and i think what's really important as a disney movie as well the lesson that comes out of it is that not everything will always go your way that you know at the end on they're doing their last run and they crash and they become heroes at home but that kind of lesson to say you know you'll always try your best and you'll always do your best but sometimes it just still it won't work out for you yeah but and i think the lesson there is just do your best and, and it's like what I, what I tried right, to speak to you about before in terms of you can't control the outcome, but you, know, you, can, you can control how you go about it and what you stand for and, and the values that you stand for and the way you go about it. And I think that's what it really, that's the takeaway, isn't it? Just like what you mentioned is like, you, you, you may not win, but it's, it's kind of how you play the game. Well, it's an absolute must watch. Cool Runnings is now available to stream on Disney+. Plus. Jamie Heaslip, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much, Stephen. I love talking about movies. I appreciate it. I am out here for you. You don't know what it's like to be me out here for you. It is an up at dawn, pride swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about, okay? God, help me. Help me, Rod. Help me. Help you. Help me. Help you. You are hanging on by a very thin thread. <laughs> and I dig that about you! Oscar-winning director Asif Kapadia visited the IFI last June for a screening of his latest film, Diego Maradona, an acclaimed look at the life of the iconic Argentinian footballer. He spoke with filmmaker Ross Whitaker about the making of the film and trying to get access to the great man himself. I suppose the, the, you start at the beginning, right? So... You know, you've done Senna and Amy. Was this a natural progression or was it something that was in your mind for a long time? I mean, um, I, I am a big football fan. So I was obviously aware of Diego Maradona. Um, grew up kind of like 1990s. I read a book about Maradona's life. And I remember just like it was where he was from, his background and some of the kind of crazy situations he got himself into. So I, there was a moment then when I was just making short films still when I thought, God, would it be great one day to make a film about Diego Maradona? Um, so there was this like, tiny little germ of an idea back in 1998, 1999. Then I did make Senna, which, you know, my background's in drama and fiction films. And so Senna was like an unusual turn for me to take. And I got offered by a producer... Um, Diego Maradona project again as an idea and having just made a film about a kind of a Brazilian sporting hero I didn't think it, I wasn't ready to do the Argentinian sporting hero straight afterwards so it kind of went away again so it's come and gone many times over the years I did a few other things I did Amy then it felt actually having made two films about two kind of wonderful brilliant people who died young 
Maybe it felt right to do a film about him now because it's about what happens when you get old, what happens when you have to deal with some of the issues or not deal with the issues that, and the mistakes you've made um, and you lose your gift. And it just felt like it was different. And it seems there was a, a ton of footage there and I think I read that there was someone that had followed him during the Napoli years and, so you, and you knew that was there. Or did you? So, so that producer contacted me and said, like, there's this material about Diego Maradona that someone's filmed. We didn't really understand what it was or where it came from, but what, what transpired is that Maradona's first agent, who kind of discovered him when he was a kid, had this idea of making a movie about Maradona. And this is back in 1981, just as he was at Boca Juniors in Argentina, and he was about to go to Barcelona. So he thought, you know, he's a massive star, let's make a movie. So he hired two Argentinian cameramen to kind of follow him around, on the pitch, off the pitch. And they went to Barcelona, and it was a bit of a disaster. It was like two years of everything going wrong. His leg got broken, and, you know, he didn't really do anything. So then he got sold to Naples, and they followed him to Naples. So they were going on for a few years. But then classically, in any kind of one that's around Diego Maradona, at some point, he's going to fire you. Uh, so they got kicked out. Uh, his new agent came along and said, we don't want to get rid of him. Probably didn't pay them. So they went off with the tapes. And these tapes somehow were being kept in, in the back room somewhere in Naples. And we found that later on, the other half were being kept by Diego Maradona's ex-wife in a trunk somewhere in Buenos Aires. And so my brilliant team of researchers found out about this and went through all the tapes and logged them and, you know, somehow brought them to me. And I saw them. And my instinct is always like, it's not enough. It's still not good enough. It's not a movie. So then we have to kind of push and push and push and start talking to people. So th there is this private footage that was shot on Diego, as well as all the other sources and archives that are out there that we've kind of put together to make the film. Yeah, it's funny, because I'd read that story, and then when I was watching it, I was finding it very difficult to decipher which was which, you know, and it managed to bring it together in such a way that it just flows. That's good. Some of the football stuff is this private footage, because in those days, like, it wasn't so strict who could film. So all the close-up stuff on the side of the pitch or behind the goal where you see him playing, and it's just him in frame, that's his private cameraman who were like, it's Diego Maradona's mates, they can go anywhere with a camera. So they're the people who follow him as we're driving to the stadium. They're the people there when he's like walking out in that kind of gladiator shot. Um, and a lot of the football, the, and some of it's his ex-wife's footage of the kids and things like that. I couldn't believe like, the pain-killing injections. Yeah. That someone had filmed that. I mean, yeah, that, that, all of this stuff, you know, it's all kind of forms of drugs, isn't it? It's all stuff to numb the pain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's like home movies. Someone was filming that in home movies. How long does it take? I mean, in, in all your projects, you've managed to bring together all of this footage to, to make this, these films that just sit together and, and bring you along. How long does that process take? What is the process? Amy was the first film that I made where there was never a piece of paper. There was no pitch, there was no treatment, there was no document, there was never any, I'm going to make this film and it's going to be about this, this and this. It was like, we're making a film at Amy Winehouse. If you can get the music and the publishing and let me, let me speak to anyone I want to speak to and give us a couple of years, then I'll do it. Because I'd made Senna by then. Yeah. Okay. So Senna was the one where I came in and I was a hired director. So, so Senna was interesting okay, because of the style of it being entirely made out of archive. You know, this idea of telling the story like it's a feature film. That was the idea. We just stay in the present. Now, if you knew people before they saw the film, if they knew anything, it's like this guy who was a racing driver and he died. And that's kind of what they knew if you, if you were not a hardcore fan. So the idea was saying, well, what if we try to forget that second bit, right? What if we just say he's a racing driver and how did he live? That became the idea of the film. And um, the producers had originally set it up in a more conventional sense, which is 40 minutes of archive footage, 40 minutes of interviews, talking heads, and miscellaneous 10 minutes. 
And when I started looking at the footage, my main kind of task as a director was to say, I think there's, there's some amazing material out there. And because of the nature of Formula One, everyone films everything because it's all about advertising, it's all about sponsorship. I think there's a way of doing it without any interviews. And everyone thought it was crazy. And just that argument about doing it without interviews or with interviews was like a two-year-long argument to get people to buy into it. And the way I would do it is just we kept screening the film. And we showed really long cuts. It was a five-hour cut, a four-hour cut, three-hour cut. And we'd show it to people, like friends and people within the industry. We'd have private screenings. And even though everyone was like, it's way too long, you know, you have to bring a packed lunch and everything, but <laughs> it moved people right from the beginning. Even when it was not finished, it moved people, and there was something there, and that kind of instinct. So Senna was the first one we were working at the style. When it came to Amy, because I'd made Senna, I was able to go to like, the people who owned the kind of estate, which was the label, the second manager, and her father. That's who I had the first meeting with. And they were asking me to make the film. So I said, okay, I've just made this film Senna, which they all liked. I will make this film if you, like I said, give me the music, give me the publishing, leave me alone for two years, don't tell me who I can and cannot speak to. And also, we all know, my producer and I were saying, you know, we all know how she died. She died of addiction. We're going to have to deal with that issue. If you're not happy with that, then you should get someone else to do it. And they were like, no, 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 we want you to do it. So it's like, okay, fine. So that's what we did. And then when word would get back to them occasionally about who I was speaking to, they'd be like, you can't talk to that person. I'm like, no, that's the deal. You have to leave us alone. And, and that's how we made it. So weirdly enough, I was kind of making it about them. I kind of by then had the freedom to kind of make it how I wanted to do, knowing that at some point I'm going to have to show it to them and there's going to be a row. And, it, and every film before the film's completed, I show it to the key contributors privately and we sit down and we say, this is what the film is. And we, if, they, if they have a problem, I'd rather know before I finish the film. With then Diego, I presume he watched Senna and Amy and that helped you to get the... You kind of had the access, but to convince him yeah. to completely get on board. He liked... He's a big fan of Senna, the man, and he... Um, he had seen the film and really liked it, so that helped. And as the producers were doing their kind of contract, Amy was kind of going on this crazy awards run and, and it won an Oscar. So he's like, on his Facebook page, has a picture of me saying, this guy has won an Oscar, his next one's about me. And they, I don't think they'd done the deal at that point, so it was a good sign. That's a good sign. Um, they, but it's never easy. It then took a long time just for me to meet with him. Um, and, and to kind of answer your earlier question, what, what we do is we do a lot of research and with Diego Maradona, it was three years to make the film. One year is just research, archive researchers going out, going to Naples, reading all of the books, meeting people, making a list of who the key contributors might be. Um, then I come on board and I start doing a rough edit with an, like an assistant editor just to start putting it together in some sort of order, chronological order. The, the material when it comes in is not dated. You're looking at someone, you just have to... What I end up doing for all of these films is I spend years just studying their face and their eyes going... What period is that from? Is that 84? Is that 85? You know, what's his hair length like? How happy does he look? You know, there's a point where you can just see he doesn't look very happy. Something's up. He's got chubbier. That's probably 87, 88, 89, something like that. And so what's interesting is your, it's detective work. While that's going on, I start interviewing people. And, and generally, I just do audio interviews. On Senna, I did interview Alan Prost on camera, and I did a few others. But very quickly, I just felt the kind of way that I like to work um, and the kind of length of time I want to talk. I don't want any distractions. I don't want the tape running out or someone saying, can we fiddle with a light or can we do that? I'm like, I don't need any of this stuff. I just want you to talk and I want you to forget that we're doing this, forget the process. And with Amy, 
specifically, it was very emotional. People were talking for the first time about her. On that film, we would sit in the dark. I, I had a sound studio and we had a microphone. It was just the two of us and I turned the lights off and we would just chat and whatever they wanted to talk about. And it became like therapy sessions and everyone would start crying and then they'd open up. And it's only really if they felt they could trust me and open up that they would want to give me any personal footage. With this film, it was a bit of the interviews, the research, and then my editor normally starts like a year into the process. It's quite expensive, so you don't want to start right at the beginning. You don't know what the film is, yeah? So you bring him in when you've got a film almost. You've got an idea of a film, and then he starts cutting. And then his name's brilliant, Chris King. He edits on one side, and I have my own avid, and I'm always thinking ahead. What's next? What are we missing? How do, how do I kind of go and find some more? I'll go off to Buenos Aires. Diego was... So we're in London... Uh, Diego Maradona was living in Dubai. The story takes place in Naples, and all of the key contributors were living in Buenos Aires. And they all speak Spanish, and he speaks, you know, the, the films, the rest of the films in Italian. I don't speak either of them. It was a pretty complicated situation, yeah. and, and it was, like, not cheap to kind of do anything. So you have to save up the trip for, like, eight months before you can actually go somewhere and meet everyone in, like, one week where you've got to meet everyone. One interview on after... We were doing interviews with Fernando Signorini, the trainer... He was in Mexico. A lot of our interviews were like 1 or 2 a.m. That's when we'd start because Mexico was a bit behind Buenos Aires. So we'd go to a studio and we'd be there at 2 o'clock in the morning and work till like 4 a.m. Whatever it is, whatever it takes to get people, you kind of do it. And with Diego being alive, um, did it make you think about your process a lot in relation to the previous two films? I mean, it, maybe it complicates it in a way, but it also gives you an opportunity because it was kind of great to hear him talk about himself. Yeah. But then he's, you know, obviously a born liar as well. So, you know... <laughs> Football's a game of deceit. Yeah. You know, life is, yeah. I mean, it was, that was the challenge for doing it a third time is it's got to be different. And so he's alive. He's lived this long life. I've got access to him. Um, I don't know before I meet him what he's like now. I don't know what state he's in. I've heard all these stories about he's in a really bad way. You know, he's died about three times and then he's got a TV show the week after. You know, <laughs> you just can't tell with Maradona what's yeah. going on. So until you physically meet him, you don't know if he... Re- I don't know if he remembers anything. Um, but that, that was the challenge. That was the fun. And we did meet. And the first meeting was the classic one that, if anyone's ever seen anything made about Diego Maradona before, it all becomes about the challenge of meeting Diego Maradona, which is generally, no, not today, come back tomorrow. Um, and that happened for a week where we went to Dubai because we were told he's going to be free. And we went there and every day it was like, not today, come back tomorrow, not today, come back tomorrow. On the fifth day, I'm like, I'm going home. I've got kids and stuff. I'm out. Um, can I just say hello? And I got five minutes with him. We came down the stairs, shook my hand. It's like, you know, we're going to make a great film next time. And then went back upstairs. And I was like, okay. So maybe it's a bit more like, I thought, you know, this is going to be like Senna and Amy. I actually have him, but I don't have him. Mm. Um, the next time I went back was like eight months later. By then we had a rough cut of something, a shape. And then he was a much better form. He was in a better frame of mind. Um, it was just myself and my kind of uh, translator and research art producer. I did a sound recording myself, so I made a team as small as possible. Sat in his living room, started chatting. He was tired. He was like, maybe on medication or something. So it wasn't great, but he got engaged by the process. And I was able to say, what about tomorrow? Let's carry on tomorrow. And the next day, he was great. And so a lot of the stuff you hear was like from interview two, three, and four. His, his attention spans about... 90 minutes, funnily enough. Um, he gets tired, you know. So maybe he's just used to it. Okay? Yeah. He gets tired, he gets a bit bored. 
and then it's like it's over. It ends quite quickly. I'm used to doing interviews for four or five hours non-stop, and so, but with him it wasn't possible. So I tried to go with some of the difficult questions on that first meet, and he was like, no, the easy questions were like, let's talk about Claudia. You know, she's the mother of your children. I don't want to hear about her. Do not ever mention her again. Okay, right, that's one of the easy ones. Uh, well, let's talk about Jorge, you know, the guy who, who, who basically had the idea to start filming. He was your first agent. Do not bring up his name. He stole from me. Okay. Then I'm looking at the tough ones. I'm saying, I'm going to save them for another trip. You know, let's just talk about you. <laughs> you know, let's talk about your parents. And that was a good way in. Let's talk about growing up. So that kind of hardship stuff, he was happy to talk about that. And then we're like, okay, we've gotten in. And we started talking. And then that's how he sort of worked. I said, I've got to do some bankers. We've got to talk about the World Cup. We've got to talk about Italian football. We've got to talk about Barcelona. His leg break. A lot of this stuff, sadly, didn't end up in the film. You know, the opening sequence, that mad drive, the kind of French connection. In an earlier cut, that was 45 minutes. 45 minutes just to get to Naples. And it was half an hour after he left Naples. And we, we kind of had this screening. And people were just like, it's just not, it's not working. It's just too long. It's just too much stuff, too much to take. Um, so Chris King and I had to do this hardcore thing of saying, okay, five minutes of just this mad drive to get, to, because the film always began when we got to Naples. It's a very exciting opening. It does Quite bring fun, it straight it? in. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> but um, you do but even that, you know, the challenge of that footage is all this great material and you've just like, you're going to lose all this stuff because yeah. the hard part of it is the story really is Naples. No matter what we did, it began all over again. And that's where he becomes the best player in the world and that's where all the problems begin. And it was, a, it, it was a tough decision, but actually it was, yeah, those seven years are really his story. I noticed that you called it the third film of a trilogy. Yeah. Which is kind of, it feels quite final. Uh, Star Wars three is the nine, magic so. number, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know if I'm in the mood right now to do another biography, but my feeling right now is to do something about the political situation and what's going on in the world. And I feel like if I'm going to do something, that's what's bugging me right now. So it's something to do with that kind of issue, perhaps. Okay, well, just a round of applause for Asif Kapadi. Thank you very much. Thank you. Asif Kapadi's Diego Maradona is available to rent from Sky Store and iTunes. That's all from this week's iFi podcast. My thanks to Jamie Heaslip. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.